Well, this morning is a story. You've just heard part of the story read, a, a description of the accounts that happened through that night and into that morning. And so Jesus' teaching is over. For several chapters, you've been hearing his last instructions to his disciples. And so we're going to think about the story of what happened with Christ's betrayal, the trial that happened back and forth. We won't make it all the way through the trial, but we're in the middle of this story this morning. We won't quite make it all the way through. There's something in all of us that loves a good story. In the way God has wired us, we are people that love stories, especially stories of conflict. Though we may be people who don't like conflict, we love stories filled with conflict where there are two kingdoms at war. There's the good guys and there's the bad guys, and we love to see the good guys beat the bad guys. We love stories like that. We write stories like that. We are drawn to stories like that, and stories like that go back to the beginning of time. We love seeing the good guy beat the bad guy. This morning I was leaving my house. I walked out early and I stepped outside and uh, there was something different about stepping outside this morning. The temperature was warm. The sky was gray. It was still pretty early and the light was coming and there was this chorus of birds singing extremely loud as these birds were chirping and I'm seeing the flowers on my neighbor's bushes and I'm seeing the flowers in the yards and I'm, I'm feeling the warm temperatures and the chorus of spring was singing, we've won! Spring has beaten winter. It was a great story. I loved it. It was a great chorus. <laughs> Spring is here. And, and these stories go back to the beginning of time. If you remember, in the Garden of Eden, one of the first times we see this story of garden, uh, excuse me, of good versus evil break into humanity was in the story of Genesis 1 through 3 and you read those chapters and God created Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden and everything is perfect everything is good and yet what happens very quickly Adam and Eve decide to rebel against God they decide that they know better than God they decide that they don't have to obey God's commands and they partake of the forbidden fruit and at that moment sin and the evil of the fallen world breaks into our humanity. Now, sin had already broken into the created order in the spiritual realm. Satan had already rebelled against God, and a host of his angels was cast out of God's presence. And he was the one who was working to tempt Adam and Eve, and to, to tempt Eve specifically, and, and to partake of the forbidden fruit. And, and so you see the conflicting kingdoms, they come to a clash right away at the very beginning. And yet we have this promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, as God is proclaiming uh, the punishments and the judgments and the curses that, go with, well, with, that will go with what has happened. God says this, God said this to the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And we have this promise here, this foretaste 
of this conflict that's going to go on, of this struggle of these two kingdoms, God's kingdom and the kingdom of evil and darkness that are going to be at war throughout the centuries of humanity. And, and there's going to come a day where there's the promised rescuer. God says that there will be strife between these two kingdoms, but there will become an offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Now the serpent was going to bruise his heel. There would be a moment where darkness would sing. Darkness would think that they had won. It wouldn't be as beautiful as the birds chirping this morning. It would be a heinous, ugly, satanic chorus of cacophony of shouting their own victory. But it wasn't final and it wasn't ultimate. And there was a different song that would yet be sung where the good would win, where God would win. And you see some of this story unfolded. This is what Scripture is about as it, as it tells the story of how God worked through His people and this chosen plan of rescue where God is once again going to conquer over evil, where God is going to reign and rule supreme, finds its culmination in the person of Jesus. He's the promised Messiah. He's the promised rescuer. He's the, one th he's the person whom all of history has been pointing towards. You see, this is not a story between good and evil where good and evil have both coexisted eternally and we're still wringing our hands waiting to find out who's going to win on the final day. You see, God knew and understood and had sovereign plans that all of history was marching to this appointed day. That God would reign supreme and that he would conquer through Christ. And so you see these kingdoms come together again. You see the powers of darkness and the powers of evil and Satan himself working through human agents just as he did there in the garden with Adam and Eve. Now he's going to work through Pilate and through Judas and through the high priests and through the Roman soldiers and what's really happening here. This is really the, 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 the battle between good and evil, so to speak. The battle between God himself through his son Jesus Christ and the serpent is being played out. And we see the kingdoms in conflict. We see the kingdoms colliding. And so I want you to see this as we go through it in John chapter 18. So look at John chapter 18. We won't be able to pick up every single detail in the story this morning, but we're going to be able to try to walk through it. Some of these events you're familiar with, I would encourage you to read through some of the parts that we aren't able to cover this morning. As we go through this week, as we go through the Passion Week, Spend time reading in the accounts of the Gospels about the final days and hours of Christ's life. It will encourage your heart as we work towards Resurrection Sunday together. Look at John chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. So when John says, after Jesus had spoken these words, it's referring to chapters 14 through 17. It's, it's speaking about everything that had been taking place as Jesus gave his farewell discourse, as he gave his final instructions. And when he finished this, he and his disciples entered uh, into the garden. Now, some of the other gospel accounts speak more about some of the prayer that went on in the garden. And this would be where, where Jesus cried out, uh, praying, asking the Father if it be possible to let this cup pass from him. John skips over some of these things to get to this detail. 
And so there was a garden just to the east of the Temple Mount. It would have been a very short distance away. It was down a valley and up on the other side. But we're only talking about a few hundred yards here from the Temple. And we're not exactly sure where the upper room was. But this isn't massive, massive distance. They weren't walking miles and miles and miles. In fact, once they leave the garden, they're going to go to different places and kind of get bounced around between both the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities in the trial that's to follow. And most of these places at least our best guess of where they were, were quite close together. They, they weren't walking for hours. They weren't in carriages or anything like that, but they were going from place to place. And here they enter the garden. And here they're probably trying to seek some reprieve. They're trying to have some respite, perhaps a supporter of Jesus. Perhaps they had a close even private garden that he was able to enter with his disciples. And so he wants to go in there and he wants to get away from the crowds and the hustle and the bustle. And they enter this garden. Remember, keep in mind the timeline of what this is. So though, though today as a church we remember Palm Sunday, remember the triumphal entry in the story of John happened back in John chapter 12. We covered that on about the second week of February. So we have been for several weeks and months now just in the final hours of Christ's life. This Christ has celebrated uh, with his disciples the Passover meal. He's washed their feet. He's given them all their instruction and he's just hours away from his own crucifixion. In fact, in just a few moments, he's going to be betrayed here in the garden and this is he, where he will be handed over to the authorities. So look at verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now remember, Judas left in chapter 13. When, when Jesus calls him out that he's the one that's going to betray him, he sends him out and there's, the community has been cleansed and now Judas in the meantime has been working on his plan to betray Christ. And so it says that he comes with the chief priests. It says that he comes with some of the officers. So remember there's two authorities at work on a human system here. Earlier I was talking about spiritual kingdoms. On a, on a human kingdom level, you've got two nations at work. You've got the Jewish authorities. That'd be your chief priest. That's some of the officers that he comes with. So some of the policemen probably, something equivalent to the policemen of the temple court system. And he comes with the religious leaders, those Jewish authorities. He also comes with a band of soldiers. Now the word that's used here helps us know here he's gotten Roman soldiers. So during the time of the festivals, there would have been additional troops from Rome who were usually stationed in Caesarea but they would have made their way to Jerusalem during some of these feasts to be able to be crowd control and Judas has been able to procure some of them as well and he knew about this garden for Jesus often took his disciples there and so here comes Judas they come with a band of soldiers they have torches they have lanterns they have weapons they're ready to do battle the kingdoms are colliding. The kingdoms are in conflict. And you look at verse 4, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, each one of the gospel accounts gives record of the fact that Jesus knew what was coming. He, he, he had an understanding of what the significance of this moment was. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now that's a pretty 
significant response to the statement, I am he, and we need to look at that. But before we do, keep in mind what's taking place here. Jesus realizes that this is the moment. He, here's what all of history has been marching toward. The, the, the rulers are here to arrest him, to seize him, and Jesus doesn't avoid it. In fact, there's been several times throughout the Gospels, if you were to go through all the Gospel accounts, there have been several times where people were so angry, where the mob was ready to seize, where they were ready to pick up stones and throw him, and that wasn't the hour, that wasn't the time, and Jesus was able to escape those situations. And this time, the people come with soldiers, they come with torches, they come with weapons. Jesus doesn't avoid it, he doesn't duck out. He doesn't wait for his disciples to fight it out. He steps forward. He takes the situation under control and says, Who is it that you're looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he. Now at that moment when he says that, and, and, and John makes it clear that Judas, who used to be one of the twelve, is now with the them, and when Jesus says this, they fall backwards to the ground. They are astonished that he would make such a claim, and probably something supernatural even happens that causes them to fall backwards to the ground at this moment. When Jesus, with, uh, with a proclamation of who he is, says, I am! Now, to understand that, we need to understand what this meant when Jesus said, I am. Throughout this gospel, he has made statements similar to this. So on several, when he says, I am he, if your Bible in English, if that's the way it translates it, I am he, in Greek, it's just two words, ego eimi, I am. And several times throughout the gospel, you've heard, uh, we, we didn't spend a lot of time on some of this. In fact, some of, the, some of the passages we skipped over, but Jesus makes a statement where he says, I am, and then he fills in what he is. So in chapter 6, he's the bread of life. I am the bread of life. The light of the world, chapter 8. I am the gate or the door for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, I am the true vine. And each one of those times, he's saying, ego and me, and then he fills in what he is. But there's several other times in the gospel where without a descriptor, without the predicate there, he's simply just saying, I am. Now, to someone who understood the Old Testament scriptures, this would have been a very significant statement. Now, we also have to understand in the way that they used their language, not every time that he said, I am, he's not always drawing into account their minds of a revelation of who God is. He's not using the covenant name of God in every instance. For instance, in John chapter 6, when Jesus comes walking out on the water and Peter calls out and he says, Christ, is that you? And, and Jesus responds, I go, me. It is me. It is I. I, I am. He's people debate and they don't always get everybody agree on every single one but that's probably just an instance where he's just saying yeah it's me yeah I am it's me but there's other instances if for instance if you flip back to John chapter 8 I'd like you to see this John chapter 8 just go a few chapters back John chapter 8 and look at verse 5 you see in the Old Testament when when the Old Testament scriptures were translated into Greek there is a covenant name for God that was translated ego eimi so someone who's familiar with the Old Testament scriptures would have often seen I am as the covenant name for who God was so you would see that in uh, Exodus chapter 3 Exodus chapter 3 when Moses says who who is it who should I tell him sent me? And God says, I am that I am. That's who you should tell him sent you. I am has sent you. There's even a, a better reference or a more explicit reference in Isaiah chapters 40 through 55. Over and over through those chapters, God is saying, he's saying that he is 
the I am. He's using his covenant name for himself and calling himself I am. That's another name for God. So in John chapter 8, when you come down to verse 58, John chapter 8, verse 58, here Jesus is in conflict with the religious leaders and, and, and they're at odds with one another and, and somehow uh, Abraham gets brought into the conversation and, and Jesus makes the claim that he is greater than Abraham or was even before Abraham and they say, wait, 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 you're not even 50 years old. Uh, you're telling us that you have seen Abraham? Uh, they know the math there doesn't add up and look at Jesus' response in verse 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham, was, I am, ego me. And they understand the significance of Jesus taking that covenant name for God and applying it to himself. And in verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So for Jesus to claim that he was God, I am, this has huge ramifications. And so here in the garden, they say, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, I am. And they fall back to the ground. And they realize here the kingdoms have collided. And, and you wonder, well, what's going to happen now that Jesus has stepped forward? Will there be a war? Will they begin to fight? What will happen? Who is going to win? And you look at verse 7. So they asked him again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost no one. So here you see the heart of the shepherd. He's not here to fight and to lose these men. He's not here to kill and destroy. They realize they've come for him. He realized this is his moment. He says, let these men go. And with the heart of a shepherd, he, he willingly gives himself up and he wants to protect those that are his. And yet... Look at verse 10. This is interesting. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You see Peter's response. He's so zealous. He's so eager. Moments before, the other gospels would have told us he couldn't even pray with Jesus. He was asleep couldn't watch with him and yet here he is ready to do battle and he jumps out and he strikes the man and yet Jesus heals the man's ear and, and, and Jesus turns to Peter and he says put, put your sword away shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me and so moments before Jesus had been praying if possible let this cup pass from me and here you see Jesus resolve a willingness that he understands this is what the Father has appointed he understands that this is the path that's been laid in front of him. And, and the cup throughout Old Testament scriptures would often speak of death. It would symbolize God's wrath. And Jesus realizes his crucifixion, his laying his life down on the, car, on the cross, that was his cup to drink as he took God's punishment, as he took the wrath of God for the sins, as, as he paid that price that no one else could. And so we rejoice in that truth that he was willing to do that. And he realizes, though the kingdoms are conflicting, though the kingdoms are colliding, it's not yet. Put your swords away. There's more to be accomplished. And so you see, verse 12, the band of soldiers and their captain and their officers arrested Jesus and they bound him. So 
at this point then you begin to see the narrative played out and John keeps telling us the story and he's going to let us know then at this point it's very late in the night or perhaps somewhere beginning close to the middle of the night and they've arrested Jesus and now a trial needs to take place and they need to be able to do this quickly they want Christ crucified because as soon as they get to the Sabbath celebration at that point they well they won't they'll be restricted with their own religious ceremonies that they aren't able to accomplish this so the, the clock is ticking and also as well you're going to see as they go through this trial there's some things about it that are corrupt if you were to study it out things were not exactly fair uh, things were not exactly uh, followed to the letter of the law and there were some things that had to be done unjustly and behind closed doors and you begin to see Jesus bounce around from court to court now remember what I said in an earthly perspective there's two kingdoms two nations at work earthly perspective I'm not talking about spiritual here you had the Jews and their religious leaders and that's who they start with it says that first he starts with Annas and Caiaphas who were the high priests so remember the high priest would have been most important person for the Jewish nation both religiously and politically but remember Jerusalem excuse me excuse me um, the nation of Israel the Jews only had their political and religious power within the confines of the Roman construct so you, you have both the Jews who were had to go through their trial through with the high priests and Annas and Caiaphas but then you also had Pilate he was the Roman ruler and he had to have his say in the matter in fact the Jews as you'll find out later on in the passage they were not able under their law to crucify anyone only Rome could do that so somehow the Jewish leaders have to get Christ before Pilate who's the one that has the authority to crucify and they have to have their case built against Christ and they have to have witnesses that will stack up and so you begin to see that played out and uh, with Annas and Caiaphas there's a there's a, a, a bit of a trick as you read through it in John some of the others make it a little bit more clear but you have a family connection there Caiaphas is the son-in-law so Annas is the the father-in-law he used to be high priest he had several sons then be high priest including Caiaphas who was currently so Caiaphas is the current high priest current number one but remember Annas is kind of like the patriarch of the family he's not currently in power but a lot of people probably would have thought of him that way he really holds the keys let's kind of get the trial started there let's see what we can do to begin building our case so they take him to Annas here and they're, they're, they're ready to begin the the trial and then you come down to verse 15 so he, he tells us that that's the trial is starting there with the high priest uh, on the Jewish side of the trial but then he comes back to Peter you'll notice that in verse 15 and so as they enter the courtyard for the high priest Peter uh, was known to excuse me not Peter as they if you look at this 15 Simon Peter followed Jesus so did another disciple and since that disciple was known to the high priest he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest somehow he knew he was known a lot of people think that was John the, the writer of this gospel that he was somehow known to the high priest and so he was able to gain entrance he goes back and he gets Peter at the gate and the woman who lets Peter in the girl there at the gate recognizes him in fact one of the other gospel writers says that she's a relative of Malchus who had his ear cut off so maybe word had already spread I don't know so wait a minute Peter guy with the sword are you are you one of Jesus disciples also and he, he denies it he says no I'm not and remember Christ had predicted that Peter would deny 
Christ three times and this is the first of those and so John tells us about the trial he gets this little story on Peter then he comes back to the trial you come back to verse 19 and here the high priest begins to question Jesus and at this point the high, look at verse 19 the high priest then questioned Jesus about the disciples and his teaching and Jesus answered him I have spoken openly to the world I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together I have said nothing in secret why do you ask me ask those who have heard me what I said they know what I said now something interesting is going on here if they were going to be follow the laws of the day in a trial they wouldn't be questioning the witness they wouldn't be questioning the man who's on trial they would be basing the trial on the testimony of witnesses and here they begin to ask Jesus about his disciples and teaching and the things that he's saying about himself and Jesus says listen I I'm not saying one thing behind closed doors and another publicly you have plenty of people that have heard ask them so perhaps he's even giving a little bit of a I'd like a fair trial please bring some witnesses that could be why why then someone steps up and strikes him in verse 22 when he had said these things one of the officers standing strikes Jesus with his hand is that your answer to the high priest and Jesus answered if what I have said is wrong bear witness about the wrong but if what I have said is right why do you strike me so again he may be just pointing out the fact that if what I've said is wrong you need to bring witnesses against me but if I'm actually speaking the truth which I am then why do you step up and strike me and then then John comes back to Peter again and look what he says now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself verse 25 so they said to him you also are not one of the disciples are you and he denied it and said I am not one of the servants of the high priest a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off asked did I not see you in the garden with him Peter again denied it and at once the rooster crowed so you see here Peter's three denials of Christ and we won't spend a great deal of time on it this morning but one of the things that you see is John is, is, is putting the stories together and you've got Christ on trial and you've got Peter's denial and you've got Christ on trial and you've got Peter's denial and he's coming back and forth and John is the master storyteller contrasts these two and you've got Christ who's being questioned and he won't deny anything and you've got Peter who's being questioned and he denies everything and yet thankfully this is not the final word for Peter there is grace in a couple of weeks Kevin is going to show us at the end of the book God's plans for Peter where Christ comes uh, uh, and, and there's a beautiful story of, of restoration there and so we're thankful for that. But we see here where, where, Pete, where Christ had, was willing to do what Peter was not, where Peter denied Christ wasn't. And so you see the trial continue. And after uh, Annas had got his part done, he sends him on to his son-in-law Caiaphas, the high priest. And John doesn't record anything about that trial for us. Simply just says, when that was done, then they decide to send him on to Pilate. Look at verse 28. They led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. And it was early in the morning, and they themselves did not enter to the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover now that's supremely ironic you need to stop and think about that so they go from the high priest's house and now they go to the governor's quarters now Pilate would not have stayed in Jerusalem year-round but he probably is in Jerusalem because of the feast because of the Passover and there would have been a place for him to stay with soldiers and uh, 
as the Jews bring Jesus to Pilate, now we're switching earthly domains. We're switching from uh, the, the, the nation of Israel to the leaders of Rome. And here come these Jewish leaders who are, uh, in their minds, they, they, they want to stay ceremonially, ceremonially pure for the Passover and for the religious festivities that went with that. And so here they are manipulating the system to have the true Passover lamb crucified and they're going to elaborate lengths to make sure that they're not unpure. You've got to catch the irony there. And John wants us to see it. And these corrupt people are so worried about will I corrupt myself when they were killing the very one who could take care of their corruption. And look then what happens in verse 29. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Now that in and of itself is interesting. What governor goes out to meet his people? They don't want to come in because they become religiously impure. And so he has to get up and come outside and say, what, what charges are you bringing against this man? And they said in verse 30, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own laws. And the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate has to come out and meet the Jews who are bringing Christ. Why are you bringing him? And they say, listen, if, if he wasn't doing evil, we wouldn't be here. So again, we don't have great charges. They don't have specific accusations. Just he's evil. You need to judge him. Pilate really doesn't want anything to do with it. He, he, he's, he's from your nation. You have your own laws. You guys judge him. And, and they say, well, we don't have the authority to put someone to death. So right away from the beginning, their intentions are clear. And now this causes a scenario where Pilate has to go back into his headquarters and he takes Christ in with him. Verse 33, so Pilate enters his headquarters again and he called Jesus to him. So think about this scene because it's going to go all the way through the middle of chapter 19. We won't get through all of the verses, but here's what's happening. You've got an angry mob of Jewish leaders outside who won't enter inside. Pilate comes in, and he's got Christ inside his headquarters. And so there's a trial going on here, center stage, right? And, and, and Pilate has to keep coming out backstage to this other drama going on, and he's got to keep bringing the message of what's taking place. And back and forth and back and forth several times throughout this narrative, you see him questioning Jesus. Pilate is questioning Jesus. He comes out to tell the religious leaders, and they're angry and they're upset, and it's never enough, and they want the crucifixion. So look at what happens as we continue to go through this. We're in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? So Pilate's first question and accusation, again, there's not witnesses at this point. He says, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, Wait a minute. Who, who told you that? Are you recognizing that I'm a king? And Pilate says, listen, I'm not a Jew. I don't care about your nation's squabbles. Uh, I won't get involved in that. It's your leaders that brought you to me. 
So what is, it, what is it that you've done? And then look at verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to me. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? Now, if you understand what's taking place as, as Pilate and Jesus go back and forth in this exchange, Jesus admits that he's a king. But he says, listen, my kingdom is not of this world. Remember the earthly kingdoms? Israel and Rome? Jesus says, no, 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 we're talking about spiritual things here. My kingdom's not from here. If it were, we would be fighting. I would be a threat to you in your earthly kingdom of Rome. But Jesus says, that's not where my kingdom is from. Therefore, yes, am I a king? Yes, I am. But not one who's a threat to Rome. And, and, and Pilate recognizes that. Okay, so now you are saying that you are a king. And Jesus responds in essence saying, well, you say that I'm a king. Probably the emphasis there is something akin to you are correct in saying that I'm a king. This is my this is who I came to be excuse me, this is why I came to be king. This is the purpose for which I was born. And for this purpose I have come into this world to bear witness to the truth and everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So Jesus tells Pilate yes I'm a king, this is why I'm here. But my kingdom is not a threat to you and to your world. And then Pilate just says, well, what is truth? And kind of brushes this aside. Now, Pilate's stuck in a hard place. He's, he's got to figure out what to do with Jesus. Clearly, this crowd out here wants him crucified. And, and, and yet, he's not seeing the charges against Christ. He also knows how problematic this is going to be. Remember, not all of the Jews are against Christ. There's many, there's many people throughout the Roman region who would have loved to see Christ crowned king. Again, they would have been thinking about the overthrow of Rome. So Pilate's in a very difficult place. And he says this, After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and he told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the past. Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. And then John tells us, now Barabbas was a robber. So why would the people want Barabbas released? If you were to read through the other gospel accounts, you will see that uh, each of them used a different aspect of Barabbas' character to describe who he is. Here, John says that he's a robber. You might have a footnote in your Bible that another way you could translate that word would to be that he's an insurrectionist. So if you remember a few months ago, I was telling you that there was a spectrum of people and a spectrum of Jewish people and their attitude towards Rome. Some were very happy to cooperate with Rome. Certainly the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests were more willing to cooperate with Rome. On the far end of the spectrum were the zealots, those who were willing to commit insurrection, those who were willing to rob and to murder and to steal and destroy so that they could see Rome overthrown. So here's Barabbas, and in other places we see him described as a thief, we see him described as a murderer, we see him described as a criminal. He's an insurrectionist. He truly is a threat to Rome. And they had a custom where they could see one man released, and perhaps Pilate thinks, this is a real problem. 
I don't really want to see Christ crucified, but maybe we've got to let the, the leaders save face. And so, so he makes this offer thinking that maybe they will choose Christ. They will choose to see Jesus release. And what happens? They say, release Barabbas. We want Barabbas released. Why would they do that? And you look at that and you realize it seems like just very ironic that someone who was truly a threat to Rome was released and allowed to go free. Barabbas' name meant son of the father. And so in an ironic twist, you see someone who truly was the son of the eternal father handed over and crucified and someone who was a common criminal, an insurrectionist, a murderer, truly a threat to Rome, was released and he went free. And, and, and there's part of us that would question that and wonder how does something like that happen. And then you look at it from another's perspective and you say, why wouldn't Pilate take a stand? He had the authority to say, I see no guilt in this man. Done. Case closed. And he wouldn't do it. He kept going back and forth. And you, even as you keep reading in chapter 19, you will see in chapter 19 as we keep walking through that, that, that Pilate, he, he wanted Christ released. He said, such in verse 12 that from this time on he sought to release Jesus and he wouldn't make it happen his own wife warned him in a dream Matthew tells us have nothing to do with this righteous man I suffered greatly in a dream she sends this message on to Pilate and so here's Pilate stuck that the nations want him excuse me the Jewish leaders want him crucified and yet Pilate doesn't want to crucify him and he tries to wash his hands of the matter but what if all of this was pointing to something bigger you see there's part of us that questions why would a guy like Barabbas get released why wouldn't Pilate just step up and do something did God's plans fail in these colliding kingdoms? Did God's plans fall apart? Well, no. What if God was supremely at work? I read an account this morning where a man looked at this and he was very familiar with Scripture. And he said, why would Barabbas get released? And he, he noted Jesus' popularity and he said, see, look, if a guy was really that popular, why would the crowds turn on him? Why would the crowds, if he could really heal people and if he could really do all these signs and if he could really do all these miracles, why would the crowds turn on him? And you know what his answer was? His answer was, see, you and I, us Christians, exaggerate who Jesus was and who he did. The fact that he was crucified is proof that the fickle crowds turned on him. Is that the answer? You see, that man would be right if the narrative ended here. In just a few short hours, Christ is going to be dead. His body laid in a tomb. And dead people don't come back to life. That's the way the world works, right? Not if you're the one who made the world. Right? And so in just a few short hours, Christ's body will be laid in the tomb, but we remember what we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday. And all of this is pointing to the fact that Christ was supremely king. He would raise again to new life, and Jesus had the power over life and death. And you look at Christ's life, and one of the things this teaches us is that God's plans will not be thwarted. And you look at Christ's life. At the beginning of his life, Herod, the Jewish leader, tried everything possible to have Christ killed. Murder the babies. He couldn't do it. 
At the end of Christ's life, the Roman leader, Pilate, tried everything possible to avoid having Christ killed. And his plans didn't succeed. Christ was still turned over and crucified. But this wasn't men working out their plans. This was a sovereign God who had orchestrated all of history and moved moments to this event. God's plans will not be thwarted where man's plans will fail. So my question for you, unbeliever, if you are here this morning, if you have not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ, realize that God's plans will be accomplished. And where Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit and rebelled against God, you and I have all done the same thing in rebelling against God and His authority. And the Bible calls that sin and the punishment for that is separation from God, death, judgment. And yet Scripture makes it clear that when we turn to Christ in salvation, trusting in what Christ has accomplished on the cross, we find life and forgiveness and eternal life. Turn to Christ. Have you trusted in Christ for salvation? God's plans will not be thwarted. Turn to Him today. And if you're a believer here this morning, do you recognize that Christ is king, that he is sovereign, that he is Lord, that he is the ruler of your life. Because you see, it bothers me that the crowd called out for Barabbas. Release Barabbas. Why would they choose an imposter king? But you and I as believers, every time we sin, every time we make our kingdoms about ourselves and our wishes and our wants, every time we speak evil against one another every time we withhold forgiveness every time we indulge in sinful pleasure we're crying out Barabbas release Barabbas I, I want my king and we're rejecting the sovereign king we're, 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 we're saying no to the one who bought us oh believer don't, don't, don't do that God's plans will not be thwarted recognize Christ as king let's pray Father we come to you and we are thankful for who you are. We're thankful for what you have accomplished for us in the person of Christ. Father, we want to see Jesus as the one who truly is the king, who truly is sovereign over our lives. And if there are some here this morning who do not know Christ as Savior, Father, will you convict them of their need of Christ for salvation. For believers who are here and have not yet submitted some area of their life to Christ, I pray that you would convict and encourage and instruct. And may, may this week of focusing on the passion of Christ uh, warm our hearts to turn from sin, to trust in Christ, to grow in Him. We ask and pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.